Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This is the first in a series of podcasts about semiconductors in advance of an event being held by the Foundation for Science and Technology on the 24th of May on the UK Semiconductor Strategy. My guest this week is Professor Rachel Oliver, Professor of Material Science at the University of Cambridge and Director of the Cambridge Centre for Gallium Nitride. Professor Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So let's start with a fairly general question. Why are semiconductors so important to industry and society? Well, semiconductors really underpin all sorts of devices that we use day to day. Perhaps the most obvious place where we find semiconductors is inside devices like computers, mobile phones, where there are semiconductor chips that are basically doing all the processing of information that those devices do. And I guess we're all you know, fairly comfortable with the idea that computers and phones and other tech is important to us. What people maybe don't realise is that a lot of the other things they're using at home or at work will also embed semiconductors. So if you've got a washing machine, for example, that has multiple different programmes that it runs that you can adjust, there'll be a semiconductor chip controlling that. Your car will have engine management software. There will be a semiconductor chip controlling that. And semiconductors do lots of other things for us as well. So for example, I work on gallium nitride. That's the material that is the actual kind of light emitting part of LED light bulbs. So these energy efficient light bulbs that you can buy. So that is then light being emitted by a semiconductor device and being used by some of us at home just to see everything we're doing. And nobody would perhaps think of that as involving an advanced material like a semiconductor, but that's the material at the heart of that device. And many of us will have heard that there's a global shortage of semiconductors. What's the reason for this? So I think a lot of it really does come down to supply chain issues that began in the pandemic. So a lot of our semiconductor chips, so that's the things in your computer or your engine management system or whatever, come from factories, which I would usually call foundries in places like Taiwan and China out in the Far East. And during the pandemic, we found that both the demand for those chips increased, and that's because lots of people were kind of switching to a more digital life, homeworking, homeschooling, all these kinds of things. But also there was a slowdown in supply simultaneously because people weren't available to do the very specialist jobs making these chips because of lockdowns and illness and that kind of thing. So we kind of got behind on semiconductor supply just as demand really went through the roof. And then to add to that, there are geopolitical tensions to worry about, particularly between China and the US. And that's um, had influence on where people are sourcing their semiconductors from, perhaps an increase in people sourcing semiconductor chips from Taiwan. And that's made the supply chain pressures worse. And we are assured that the UK is about to publish a semiconductor strategy, something it's been planning to do for quite some time. What do you want to see in that strategy? Well, I think we need to be realistic about where the UK is currently and where we can realistically get to from here. So as I say, China and Taiwan, particularly Taiwan, have been producing semiconductor chips for a very long time. They have very, very sophisticated foundries and there's been enormous investment in that. Okay, And then if we look at the US, there's been a huge investment via something called the CHIPS Act intended to bolster the US semiconductor sector and bring semiconductor manufacturing onshore into the US. So we're talking like an overall budget of about $280 billion. It's really a vast amount of money. And 
The UK, particularly for silicon, which is perhaps the most common semiconductor material, really doesn't have this long embedded history in manufacturing these devices. And it doesn't necessarily have the resource to invest the kind of amount of money that's going to be needed to catch up. So silicon manufacturing perhaps isn't our strength and we need to play to our strengths. So from my point of view, that means supporting the research base we have. We've got some really excellent university research going on on semiconductors. And then we've also got a really vibrant ecosystem of spin-out companies, startup companies, other small enterprises, often tightly associated with that university research sector, which um, is doing great work in future technologies and improving current technologies. And I think the strategy really needs to address how we can get like as much value for the UK from that really innovative group of people, companies, that kind of thing. So I guess that's not very specific. So how are we going to do that? Well, really, semiconductor innovations need some fairly obvious things. Okay, They need time and money. They need trained people. And then they do need access to some fairly specific facilities. So if it's all right, I'll talk about sort of each of those things in turn. Firstly, time and money, okay? If we're trying to get new innovations from the lab to the market, that can be really quite hard in this semiconductor space. So I am a founder of a spin-out company, and when we were raising capital to get our spin-out company going, a lot of the other companies raising capital were making apps. They were programming apps, creating software effectively. When you get into creating hardware, it tends to take a lot longer and cost a lot more. And that can be difficult. And that can mean that ideas kind of get stuck in the pipeline because they haven't got the right support over a long enough time scale. So one of the things we need is what's called patient capital. And that's something the government could encourage or back or incentivize via the semiconductor strategy. Capital that gives people time to get things from the lab to prototypes and then up to the manufacturing scale. So if we had the time and the money, we then need trained people to kind of implement the ideas and the development and all that. And that has been problematic. We found it difficult in both the university sector and in the industry to recruit the right people with the right skills. Okay. And there are different facets to that. It could be about educating and training homegrown talent. And that's not just like PhD level talent and people who have you know, multiple university degrees. We're also talking technicians to operate the sophisticated equipment used in fabrication. So we need to be thinking within the strategy about whether we have the appropriate training programs in place. We also need to be recruiting talent from overseas. And something that, in my opinion, the government really needs to think about there is whether immigration policies are doing a good job of attracting the people we need and letting us get them into the country. Because in my experience, currently, no, that's not always the case. So off we go. We've got time and money and people. And also this question of accessing facilities. So that can be a couple of things. It may actually be the fabrication tools needed to make prototype devices and then thereafter to scale up manufacturing and it's not necessarily efficient for like every little company to be building their own little manufacturing facilities and often these things are outsourced to big 
foundries, big factories overseas. And there are risks to that because it means you have to essentially send your ideas and your IP to these international foundries. So the availability of more kind of small scale prototyping facilities on UK soil would actually be really valuable. And that's something that could be part of this strategy. If we're going to be using the big international foundries or fabrication facilities, we might like to think about whether as the UK, we can develop some collective bargaining power so that we can do that. Our UK companies can be accessing these facilities more cheaply and with better IP protections rather than everybody kind of negotiating things separately. And there's another thing about working with these large foundries overseas is that we need specific software to allow us to design devices in a way that then allows those designs to move smoothly into the fabrication facilities. And that design software is often owned again by big international corporations, can cost a very large amount of money to access. And again, sort of a, a, a corporate UK approach to together having access to that sort of software to enable the prototyping we need to do could also be very valuable. So I think those are all things I'd like to see the strategy doing to really help the UK sector and particularly the, the, the small startup companies who could make a lot of economic growth for the UK if they can just get their toe in the market in the right way. So there's a huge amount of things in there and we'll have to see when the strategy comes out how many of those ideas the government has got there and, and how it takes things mm, forward. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to sort of pick on, which you mentioned right at the start, actually, was that from a UK competitiveness point of view, we're not talking about silicon because silicon is, you know, we have no chance effectively of, of catching up with where things are in silicon. So we're talking about other semiconductors. Uh, and it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about what some of those other semiconductors are, what some of the research challenges are. Some of them I know are at market, some of them are further away from market. So what's the state of, of these other non-silicon semiconductors? Okay, so here the thing that people would often be talking about in the UK is compound semiconductors. So silicon is one element, okay, and your starting point for a silicon chip is a very, very pure crystal of silicon. A classic compound semiconductor would be something like gallium arsenide or um, gallium phosphide. So these are compounds of group three and group five materials, the most common ones. And some of those materials have been around for a very long time. So the, the first um, group three, five devices that were used to make light emitting diodes, for example, which is a technology I mentioned earlier, that technology was invented by a guy called Nick Holyoke in about the 1960s. Okay, So there's been an enormous amount of research developing a load of different technologies based on compound semiconductors, but these are not like new materials. That said, if we just talk about compound semiconductor for a second, there's actually a huge number of different applications for those materials. So I'll talk a little bit about gallium nitride, which is the material I principally work on. So as I said, that's the material that is in the LED light bulb. The LEDs that are in the LED light bulb are generally blue LEDs. You then don't get blue LED, like blue light shining on your living room, because there's another material in there, a chemical we call a phosphor, which create, converts some of the blue light into other colors of light. And that's how you get a white bulb. Gallium nitride is really brilliant at making 
blue emitting devices like the blue LED. It's less good at green. It's even less good at yellow. And it's not very good at all at red. And one of the things we're trying to do in my research field is improve the performance of those other colors of devices. In fact, you can make other colors of devices using other compound semiconductor materials, but none of the materials we have available at the moment are doing a really fantastic job of making very, very small light emitting diodes. And they're becoming quite a exciting area for applications as more and more companies are interested in things look like augmented and virtual reality, where we might end up using very, very tiny sort of um, micro displays quite a lot. So developing the materials that enable these micro displays, that's an exciting compound semiconductor problem at the moment. But then kind of going to the other side of gallium nitride research, this is all just one material, the same material we're using to develop devices which handle power in electric vehicles. So in an electric car, for example, there's a lot of AC to DC conversion needs to go on. There's often a lot of changing of power levels between different components. And one of the things my group's thinking about at the moment is managing power, not just in an electric car, but also in much, much bigger vehicles like electric cruise ships and electric airliners. How might we do that? And how do we handle power if we're going to make that work? So you can see that just looking at one material like gallium nitride, there's a huge range of different application areas and a lot of different materials and device challenges we're having to face up to. I think with compound semiconductors, the other thing that's increasingly important to us as a sort of research field and a community is that we try and integrate different semiconductor materials together so that different materials have different strengths, they can do different jobs for us. And if we can bring them together more in systems, get them working closely together, then we can get them to do more. So that that idea of integration and there's different different technologies that allow you to achieve integration, that's going to be a big question going forward. And that's something that I'm I'm predicting, maybe incorrectly, that the strategy may draw out. So those are the sort of fairly established alternative semiconductors to silicon, but there's also some really kind of new up and coming materials that I could mention if you'd like me to. Well, I'm interested in what you see as the balance in compound semiconductors for the UK going forward from the ones that are more established. And maybe the challenge there is scaling up. Maybe the challenge there is establishing a UK um capability and capacity for manufacturing versus the ones that are more in the lab and are very exciting but are not yet developed and and i guess what you're saying is we need we need a bit of both of these things but how do mm. you see across the piece the the uk positioning itself so that it can have a share of a kind of a, a global marketplace in the in the sort of near and the far future. So I think one thing that's important to say is that the UK has industrial strength in, in the classic compound semiconductors particularly. Okay. So we have IQE PLC. Um, they are based in Cardiff and they are arguably the world's biggest supplier of these kind of compound semiconductor materials. Now, what they supply is largely what I would call wafers. OK, so you take a very, very thin plate of one semiconductor material and on top of it, you typically grow layers of other semiconductor materials. And those layers are like your start, your Lego blocks that you build a Lego house from. They are the starting point of your device. The thing where the UK is perhaps less strong is getting from that material to an actual 
product in terms of having the foundries, the fabrication facilities for that, and then the ability. Sometimes there are there are companies who then take those devices and take them up to the systems level, but that's not always something we've got a lot of capability of in the UK. I think with the new materials, we've got more opportunities to develop manufacturing and manufacturing at scale in the UK because the manufacturing process flows are not yet as well established. We're not playing catch up necessarily. So we can look at some of the kind of developing UK spin-out companies and other small or more newly established companies. So even if we look at the fairly well-established materials, there's classic wafer fab, which is a silicon carbide newly established prototyping foundry in Scotland. They really are going from the materials to devices with their prototyping facility. It's not certainly yet kind of producing massive amounts of device, but what it's doing is allowing people to prototype, allowing them to go from that ideas to reality stage in a way that's traceable and effective and reliable. So that's that's one model for where the UK is really succeeding in that fabrication line of things. Another example would be Pragmatic, who make flexible electronics. So they have new materials and new technologies for these flexible electronics, and they're developing foundries in um, the northeast of England, which again are taking the sort of whole process flow through from the the kind of materials all the way through to the devices and the products. But that's really kind of grabbing hold of some really great ideas that were developed in the UK and maintaining the manufacturing for that in the UK, rather than kind of trying to take over stuff that's being done brilliantly elsewhere in the world at vast expense. So some of those processes may be less expensive than some of the kind of traditional fabrication processes that are running large scale in other countries. I think there's a few different examples of that with some of the novel materials. So there's a lot of excitement about two-dimensional semiconductors at the moment. So many of your listeners will have heard of materials like graphene, which are these kind of amazing sheets of carbon with novel and interesting properties. There are a load of other two-dimensional materials analogous to graphene with interesting semiconductor properties. You can stack them up mechanically to make devices with extra functionality. And the kind of perfect fabrication process or, or, or the ideal fabrication process for those materials is not yet necessarily well established. And because it's new, because it's novel, and because there are lots of different opportunities there, we can be the people to establish those fabrication processes. So there's a company called Paragraph, um, and they are attempting to establish large-scale graphene and other 2D materials manufacturing in the UK for kind of future semiconductors. I'll mention briefly Pora Technologies, who Poratech, who are my own spin-out company. So there we're working with a much more standard material with gallium nitride. Um, but we have a process which is, again, IP that was developed in my lab in the UK, and we're doing that part of the manufacturing process in the UK, which means we have hold of our IP. It means we change the properties and the structure of the material using our process, which creates lots of tiny holes in our gallium nitride material to change its properties. And there's so I think what we're seeing with all these things is that where there's new and exciting ideas coming out of UK research, we can start establishing and gradually scaling up those processes here on the ground if we've got the right support for that. I think the risk is that 
these types of semiconductor industries, I think, have been slightly overlooked by the government for quite a long time, which may be why it's taken them a little while um, to develop a semiconductor strategy. And with these things being overlooked in favour of other industries, there can be a lot of pull and a lot of pressure on small businesses to take these manufacturing processes elsewhere, which reduces their ability to have economic impact in the UK. Yes, it's it's one of those areas where I think you're saying without government backing and support, the scale up won't necessarily happen naturally in the UK. It actually needs a little bit of oomph. Otherwise, the IP will simply go elsewhere. Yeah. And I think um, so I was in the US talking about some of these issues uh, a couple of months ago. And the picture that was very clearly coming through there is that they are keen to incentivize people to bring all sorts of different semiconductor manufacturing to the US. And with those incentives available elsewhere, it would almost be irresponsible of companies to stay in the UK if it's going to be more expensive and they can't find the people they need to run their processes. So I think it's, um yeah, even if one could sort of scrape around doing it here without government support, it just isn't necessarily the best way of doing things. And companies have a responsibility to kind of get stuff done in an efficient fashion for the people who are funding them in general. No, absolutely right. And if we get this right, how does the UK compare with other countries? Are we fighting with a large number of other countries all trying to do the same thing? Or are we likely to fragment into a small number of people producing uh, these, these devices? Or are we going to be in a position where there's lots of different types of semiconductors uh, made of different materials and different countries will end up specializing in them and there'll just be a large supply chain? What's the end game for this, do you think? I mean, I think, as I said at the beginning, we are not going to win the fights with silicon. We are so far behind that we're never going to catch up. I think probably, so there are going to be a lot of different materials. There are a lot of different applications which need different materials. And in some cases, there will be many different solutions even to the same problem. So if you look at something very familiar to everybody, like a flat screen, television yeah you can buy televisions that are lcd liquid crystal display um that has semiconductor control but isn't a, a light emitting semiconductor technology in my view you can buy oleds which are use polymeric semiconductors which we haven't discussed at all you can buy led tvs which use the sorts of semiconductors i work on you can buy um qleds which use quantum dots in combination with other semiconductors so you can see like there's a whole vast span of materials all kind of giving different advantages in essentially the same application. And I think the key thing for the UK is to identify our current strengths and make sure we build on them and use them and don't kind of let th those strengths be frittered away for lack of support. And then we are identify from those strengths some niches where we can really get a really good market share and have as much benefit to the UK as possible in those niches. I don't think I don't think we're anyone's pretending we're going to take over all of world semiconductor. Well, that sounds like an exciting uh, set of things. We'll have to see how that develops and how the UK government strategy helps that. That's all we've got time for today. But Professor Rachel Oliver, thank you very much. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Rachel Oliver, Professor of Material Science at the University of Cambridge and Director of the Cambridge Centre for Gallium Nitride. The UK Semiconductor Strategy is the subject of an evening discussion event being organised by the Foundation for Science and Technology on the 24th of May. Details of that event, which is free to attend, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk forward slash events. Also on the website are details of all our other events, all our blogs, all our journals, and all previous editions of this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.